The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. What do you do when you have free time on your hands in New York City? Do you take in some shows, pursue a curious prophecy, or both? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Last Monday's show was our annual end-of-year thoughts on where we've been in 2014 and what lies ahead for 2015. It seems like we're ultimately headed toward a period of spiritual awakening, especially concerning the acceptance of NDEs and OBEs. But what stands between here and there is formidable societal challenges. These manifest themselves in such ways as forms of personal and corporate greed, which are causing widespread economic distress to our shrinking middle class, and terminal environmental pollution. Add to that our real problems of educational decline and mental distractions confronting the young people who should be initiating that spiritual change right now, but how can kids begin to understand spiritual truth when their minds are constantly distracted by street drugs, internet games, social Facebooking, and converting trivia to text one slow letter at a time while the river of life passes them by? It's going to be hard for children to see the light when their parents are so deeply engrossed with real material needs and passing those survival fears onto their kids. But has it always been this way? Will the sins of the fathers and mothers always be visited on children to the seventh generation, as the Bible warns? I recently read two books written by Messianic Jewish rabbi Jonathan Kahn. He claims to have uncovered a cycle of economic and political disasters visited on Israel and now America because of our ongoing bad behavior. His first book, titled The Harbinger, was a best-selling novel in 2012. His premise was that the fall of the Twin Towers on 9-11-2001 was a warning from God that paralleled the fall of the ten northern tribes of Israel to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. A key clue for Khan was that American politicians incorporated the same words about 9-11 used by arrogant Judeans quoted in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verse 10, that, quote, the bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Kahn points out that all the political speeches made after 9-11 in which these words were quoted ignored the fact that Isaiah is calling them arrogant and an offense to God. The phrase preceded, preceding states, The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. And this is the phrase in the Bible that follows that quote. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of Retzin, who was the king who ruled from Damascus, against him and join his enemies together. The Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand 
is stretching out still. Not a pretty picture, for sure. All this suffering came down because Israel did not return to God, but decided they could simply rebuild on their own. And Khan claims we made the same mistake after 9-11. For Israel, it took nearly 140 more years for Judah and Jerusalem, the Temple Mount and all, to, to fall, but fall it did. And the Jews were hauled away to Babylon for 70 years. Khan has based his Harbinger novel on a premise that could have been explained in a short article, actually. But articles never get the same audience, so he decided to dramatize it. Khan cites parallels between this fall of Israel and events related to 9-11, calling these events and facts harbingers, warnings, and argues that they show a connection between ancient Israel's destruction and the possible coming destruction of present-day America. He also says that ancient Israel received a warning before being destroyed and that the 9-11 harbingers form a similar warning from God to America. Before God judges a nation, he sends warning, Khan writes. But America, like Israel, has not responded with repentance but with, a be- with, but with defiance. So Khan names nine warnings, which he calls the nine harbingers, and uh, they've been summarized in Wikipedia with this um, introduction. Wikipedia writes, the book draws parallels between the Kingdom of Israel and the United States. The author argues that America was founded similar to ancient Israel, and the founding fathers envisioned a country based on the rules of God and a light unto the nations. The author lists a series of warnings or harbingers that were given to ancient Israel before its final destruction by the Assyrians and makes a parallel between each and the events of 9-11. So here's a summary uh, done by Wikipedia on the harbingers mentioned in the book. First one is called The Breach, and the author argues that the United States, just like ancient Israel, has breached the covenant and made with God at the time of its foundation. Thus, the hedge of God's protection around America was lifted on 9-11, similar to the way the hedge of protection around ancient Israel was lifted. And number two, the terrorist. The author argues that similar to the way the kingdom of Israel was attacked by Assyrians, the United States was attacked by Al-Qaeda, and the Assyrians were a Semitic people, children of the Middle East. So too were the terrorists of 9-11. Number three is the fallen bricks. The most visible signs of the attack on ancient Israel were that uh, that of the fallen buildings and the ruined heaps of fallen bricks. In 9-11, the most visible site of the attack was also the fallen bricks of the fallen buildings. For the tower, the harbinger symbolizes the fact that after the Assyrian attack, the kingdom of Israel did not repent from its sins, but vowed to rebuild its buildings with its own power. Similarly, the author argues that the United States also did not repent from its sins after the warning and continued its path, vowing to rebuild on ground zero with its own power. Number five, uh, the so-called Gazette stone. The Israelites carved out quarried stone from mountain rock and brought it back to the ground of destruction where clay bricks once stood. Well, three years after 9-11, a 20-ton quarried rock 
meant to serve as the cornerstone of the new building, was brought to ground zero. A ceremony took place over the rock in which New York Governor George Pataki pronounced, Today we, the heirs of that revolutionary spirit of defiance, lay this cornerstone and unmistakably signal to the world the unwavering strength of this nation and our resolve to fight for freedom. Catch that. We, the heirs of that revolutionary spirit of defiance. Eventually the stone was removed from ground zero. Number six is maybe the most interesting. It's about the sycamore. In Isaiah 9.10, the nation of Israel declares that its sycamore trees have been destroyed by the Assyrians during the attack, but they would replace them with cedar trees. Well, after the collapse of the buildings during the 9-11 attacks, a shock wave was created that damaged most, most buildings around the area. Only one building was not harmed, which was St. Paul's Chapel, and that was protected by a sycamore tree that is believed to have captured the blast. Khan points out that St. Paul's Chapel was also the place that the government of the United States prayed on the day of the first inauguration of George Washington on April 30th, 1789. Now, the sycamore is known today as the 9-11 sycamore, and a memorial was built for it. And I'll tell you more about that uh, in a little bit. So number seven on the list was the Eretz tree. In Isaiah 9.10, the nation of Israel vows to replace the damaged sycamores with cedars, which are stronger. And two years after the events of 9.11, on November 29th, 2003, an actual tree was planted in the place of the original sycamore in front of St. Paul's Chapel. This tree was a uh, 21-foot spruce tree and was called the Tree of Hope. Uh, number eight, the utterance or the vow of defiance. Um, for there to be a parallel with ancient Israel with this harbinger, Khan says a national leader would have to speak the defiant vow to rebuild in the nation's capital, which he argues the U.S. Senator uh, John Edwards did during a 9-11 memorial on September 11, 2004, when he quoted Isaiah 9, uh, verse 10. Then the prophecy is the ninth uh, harbinger. Another parallel with ancient Israel, according to Khan, is that a national leader must utter the Isaiah 9, verse 10 vow as a prophecy before such events as the replacing of the tree and the bringing of the cornerstone rock to ground zero. And Khan says this occurred one day after the events of 9-11 when America issued its official response to the terrorism attacks. Senator Tom Daschle, who was the Senate Majority Leader at the time and in charge of the official response, spoke before the Congress, and at the end of his speech, he quoted Isaiah 9, verse 10. Khan says that the warnings of God came two times to ancient Israel before the third time when the nation was destroyed. Now, there's a second book uh, that Khan has written, and it is uh, actually, it came out in September of this, of uh, 2014, called uh, The Mystery of the Shemitah, the 3,000-year-old mystery 
that holds the secret of America's future, the world's future, and your future, it says quite dramatically. It's a New York Times, um, uh, the Harbinger was a New York Times bestseller, and I wouldn't be surprised if this one will be too. This is not a novel, by the way. This is a, an actual tying of the Shemitah, the seven-year cycles um, in, of uh, Israeli faith uh, to uh, the economic cycles in this country. And uh, to quote a little more from Wikipedia, Khan also argues that the financial collapses of the Dow Jones Industrial Average on September 17th, 2001 and September 29th, 2008, uh, the list of the largest daily changes in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, uh, the largest point changes, were also prophetic warnings. He says that both happened on the same day of the Hebrew calendar, the 29th of Elul, and that, and that relates them to the Shemitah, a, sav- a Sabbath year observed every seven years in Judaism in which the land isn't cultivated and debts are canceled. Khan argues that a third strike might be the collapse of American power which lies in the nation's economy. So this is, uh, the mystery of the Shemitah and how, it, how it seems to be relating to us, especially since 2001, but going back before that as well. Um, to quote again from Wikipedia, Khan has also written a nonfiction book related to the Harbinger on the Shemitah topic called The Mystery of the Shemitah, which was published uh, by Front Frontline in 2014. In this book, Khan makes a case that understanding the seven-year pattern is essential for understanding the prophecies of the Bible and links the Great Depression and other American economic collapses to the Shemitah, as well as the country's rise and possible eventual fall as prophesied in the Harbinger. Well, all this, uh, I read, um, actually I read the first book on a flight out to Arizona, and the second I had to uh, order right away because I was interested in the seven-year cycle. And I've built this program uh, as what I did on my Christmas vacation because uh, all of this led me in part to a five-day trip to New York City. Um, I also went to uh, celebrate the 50th wedding anniversary of a good friend of mine, Mauro Jones, who uh, helped me actually video the first uh, couple of interviews I did on behalf of IONS and uh, NDE Radio. Uh, I took the book with me, the Shemitah book with me. I wasn't sure what I was looking for. But since 2015 is the seventh year since the crash of 2008, which was seven years after 9-11, I figured if there was anything to Khan's uh, theories and writings, this would be a good time to try and find out. My quest had to start at St. Paul's Chapel. That's the oldest public building still in use in the city, the place uh, George Washington came to worship after his inauguration speech in 1789 in which he committed the country to God. In other words, what he did uh, in the federal building on Wall Street uh, back then was the same kind of commitment that Israel made to God um, in, in their, in their commitment to 
giving him all the deference and acknowledging him as their their strength. And um, I'll quote uh, Washington's speech in part. In tendering this homage to the great author of every public and private good, the great author being capitalized and, of course, meaning God, I assure myself, says Washington, that it expresses your sentiments, not less than my own. In other words, he says, I'm speaking for all the people of this country, nor are those of my fellow citizens at large less than either. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. In other words, he's saying there are signs everywhere that God was behind the founding of the United States. And in the important revolution just accomplished in the system of their united government, the tranquil deliberations and voluntary consent of so many distinct communities from which the event has resulted cannot be compared with the means by which most governments have been established without some return of pious gratitude along with a humble anticipation of the future blessings which the past seems to presage. These reflections, Washington goes on, arising out of the present crisis have forced themselves too strongly on my mind to be suppressed. You will join with me, I trust, in thinking that there are none under the influence of which the proceedings of a new and free government can be more auspicious, can more auspiciously commence than, as I add a couple of words for clarification, than the uh, presence of God and the, uh, and the recognition of God gives you an idea how much more convoluted uh, speechifying was in those days, how much longer the sentences, and uh, how many phrases were piled upon one another, nevertheless. So St. Paul's Chapel was the one area building that was uh, spared from the destruction from the fall of the Twin Towers. Apparently a huge beam came crashing down, would have damaged the building, would have probably crushed many of the tombstones in this ancient cemetery behind St. Paul's. They were spared because a sycamore tree died, deflecting the blow of this uh, falling beam. It was raining that Sunday, uh, so I took the subway downtown in time to catch the 9.15 a.m. service at historic St. Paul's. The pews have been removed from the chapel which I actually think is a good idea for any church because it gives you a, a space you can play with. Um, but the small group of worshippers sat in a circle around the celebrant, a young woman Episcopal priest named Emily. The gospel reading for the day was the opening of John's gospel, which I guess most Christians particularly love. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was from God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So in pursuit of understanding, after the service, I asked one of the St. Paul clergy about Kahn's book. 
He said, and this amazed me, he said he hadn't read it. I then asked the priest, Emily, what she thought about it. Oh, we don't give it any credence, she said, because Episcopalians don't believe in an apocalypse. She seemed set in her dismissal, so I didn't point out that Khan wasn't talking about apocalypse, but rather the decline of America. She acknowledged the fallen sycamore tree had saved the chapel and even the tombstones in the crowded cemetery from any damage, and went on to say they had planted some sort of evergreen to replace it. They named it the Tree of Hope, she laughed, but it died and uh, got renamed the Shrub of Despair. She mentioned that the root ball of the sycamore had been memorialized in the sculpture next to Trinity Church, the parent church to St. Paul's, that dominates the top of Wall Street. And so I set out to walk the five blocks to Trinity. It said that Trinity may be the wealthiest church in the United States because it owns much of Wall Street itself. There was a time before the next service. There was time before the next service. So I walked down Wall Street and past the stock exchange and the federal building where Washington had been sworn in as president. A huge bronze statue of our first president stands in front and kids were playing all around it, even in the rain. Khan's second book, The Mystery of the Shemitah, spells out an intimate relationship between Wall Street and God's judgment every seven years. He charts the major stock market downturns beginning in 1973, 1980, 1987, 2000, and 2007. I've already mentioned the seven-year spread between that depth of the last turning in 2008 and how the previous seven-year depth had been marked with the fall of the Twin Towers. But lest you think that at this point, uh, every seven years is a vaguely general period of time, let me add that Khan links these economic swings to the exact dates on the Jewish calendar. Khan writes in on page 109 of his book, From the 40-year period beginning in 1973, every single one of the five greatest financial and economic peaks and collapses have converged, clustered, and taken place according to the set time of the Shemitah. I returned to Trinity Church just in time for the start of the 1115 service. Uh, they have, by the way, a world-class choir. So it was a joy to sit through yet another Sunday service. I ducked out early, though, to find that immortalized uh, root ball from the sycamore that saved St. Paul's. It stands beside the church out in the rain. At first, it reminded me of bronze baby shoes because it, it looks just like a root ball covered in metal by the artist, Steve Tobin. Look up the Harbinger in Wikipedia and you'll find a photo of the root ball sculpture, along with Tom Daschle's sorry misuse of the Bible passage about the fallen bricks. There is one remarkable feature of the root ball, however. If you step into the center of the sculpture, you'll find that only the outer roots touch the ground. Hold the inner roots in your hands, and the root ball reflects and communicates the vibrations of the city. It's as if the ghost of the tree is still talking to us. The shockwave of the falling buildings destroyed a sycamore. This was uh, from uh, uh, Wikipedia again, which was standing in front of the St. Paul's Chapel for more than a century. Artist Steve Tobin used its roots as the base for a bronze sculpture memorial 
Nothing, nothing can replace the losses that have been suffered. I know there is only the smallest measure of inspiration that can be taken from this devastation. But there is a passage in the Bible from Isaiah that I think speaks to all of us at times such as this. And guess which one it is. <laughs> the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, and um, but we will replace them with cedars. This is what we will do. We will rebuild and we will recover. The people of America will stand strong together because the people of America have always stood together. And those of us privileged to serve this great nation will stand with you. And that was quoted directly from uh, Tom Daschle's uh, uh, speech, the Senate Majority Leader's speech. Anyway, to complete my tour, I walked back to St. Paul's into Ground Zero, where the newest tower had been built. It was written, the bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. The outside of the new tower is all glass, of course. But go inside, and the interior is all hewn stone. Beautiful white marble walls and floors. So the parallel to Isaiah 9.10 holds. Walking away from the building, I noticed a boy, perhaps five years old, walking with his parents toward the structure. And as he walked past me, he realized what he was seeing and exclaimed in shock and disbelief, don't tell me they're building another twin tower. His dismay was tangible, and given his tone, I couldn't agree more. If you haven't figured it out by now that we're seven years past 2008, recognize that 2015 is uh, a fact that we're into the next Shemitah year. And the last day, Elul 29, the day of remission, uh, a potent day in in these financial happenings falls on Sunday, September thirteenth, two thousand fifteen, and coincidentally, there will be a solar eclipse on that day as well. To get the full impact of the coincidences between ancient Israel and the U.S. today, you'll have to read Khan's books, The Harbinger and the Mystery of the Shemitah, and I would really be interested to know what you think. So if you get a chance, if you do read them or if you've already read them, uh, send me an email uh, to the to the station or to IANS and uh, let me know if you think it's all hooey or if there's something substantially uh, true about Khan's interpretation of uh, 9-11, the events of 9-11. Now, for those of you who are disappointed that there was no discussion of the other side in this session of NDE Radio, let me share something with you of a personal nature. While I was in New York, I stayed in a room at my father's old residence, the Union League Club. My dad, Chris Whitting Sr., was a pioneer in early TV. And during his work week at the Dumont Television Network, Channel 5, WABD in New York, he lived at this club on 37th Street and Park where I was staying. Now, getting out of the shower one morning there, I caught the distinct aroma of the aftershave he used to wear when he was alive. Even as a child, I knew him by that scent. And I felt his presence with me in the room there for several minutes. It was all, only a few days later, and thinking about it, that I realized he'd communicated with me for the first time since his death 
on a seemingly auspicious day given my investigations during this New York trip. It had been nine years, 11 days since he had died. This was my own 9-11 coincidence, if there are such things, and it's been on my mind ever since. Well, it looks like we're just about out of time for today. If you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the work of IANS, check out their website, iands.org. And tune in again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying, Happy New Year, and thanks for listening.